it's difficult. There's so many different messages that I could get across. I, I suppose, firstly, ju- just don't be too cynical about these these low risk guidelines. Don't forget that alcohol is a drug. If alcohol came on the market now, it wouldn't. It would probably be in the same category as benzodiazepines. So take take these limits seriously. It is something that that can do long term harm to your health. And so look look at your everyday drinking more carefully and consider it more carefully. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Tribe Sober podcast. Now, we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community and helping each other to stay on track. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. The importance of the Tribe Sober community to me is around five things. It's about knowledge. It's about connections. It's about inspiration. It's about resources and it's about support. So I acknowledged all of you who have helped me as part of this community. Uh, Each one of you is so incredibly special. Thank you. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on the Join Our Tribe button. Now this week I'm interviewing British psychiatrist Dr Tony Rao. He's an international expert on alcohol misuse in older people and he's got more than 20 years of experience in that field. Dr Tony works with the so-called baby boomers. If you're not familiar with that expression, then it refers to people born just after the war between 1946 and 1965, people who are 55 plus. And many of the people in our community, including me, of course, are in that age bracket. So Dr. Tony's advice is certainly relevant to us. Personally, I wish I'd met him a long, long time ago, as I had no idea that I was risking my mental and physical health by drinking a bottle of wine every day. So let's get straight to my interview with Dr. Tony. So good morning, Dr. Tony. Thank you so much for for giving me some time this morning to discuss this very important subject. Yeah. So um, just start off by introducing yourself a little bit, please. So I'm Tony Rao. I'm a a consultant in older people's mental health at South London and Maudsley NHS Trust. But uh, 
I, I come from a medical background, so both my parents were were doctors. In fact, both my parents were community doctors, which probably encouraged me and inspired me to work in the community, particularly with vulnerable people. So my father was a community geriatrician and my mother was a community learning disability doctor. So I sort of grew up in the community and that really, I suppose, was the impetus to my interest in helping vulnerable people with a medical focus in the community. And that's obviously something that we can talk about further. Sure. So so just try and explain to us, um, Doctor, why we have to look at older people differently than the general population. I mean, obviously, there's a huge problem with alcohol throughout yeah. all the ages. But, but why does it get particularly serious as we get older? Well, I think that there are two issues here. I suppose the first one is more obviously, it's not just the fact that the older generation are more susceptible to alcohol problems. It's the fact that this older generation is more susceptible to alcohol problems than previous older generations. And so what we now come on to is the the eponymous baby boomer population. So people born between 1946 1964. And for that population, for that older population who are now 55 and over, in fact, I'm right at the bottom of the that cohort, that generation being 55, my, just 55 myself. And as we were growing up, we certainly found that cultural attitudes towards drinking were very different, say, from the, say, the younger generation of today. So as we were growing up. So for example, the, the actual positive health benefits of alcohol were emphasised. The acceptability of getting drunk was positively encouraged. So it was quite common, as anybody of my generation knows, that that it was quite cool to say, well, I got drunk last night and I didn't remember what happened. And, and so if you're brought up in that era, that generation, and also surrounded by advertising and messages that encourage you to drink, including peer peer influences. It's probably not surprising then to, to note that uh, this generation of baby boomers has been less likely to cut down on their alcohol as they've got older. So that's one that's one issue, if you like. Uh, the other one, of course, is that for any older population, as you get older, the, the, the likelihood of physical health problems is going to be higher so it's going to be increased compared with younger people and of course older people are on multiple medications i think it's been quoted that over 70s are on at least five med the average is five medications per person and that is going to interact with alcohol and lastly okay. lastly of course uh, we can't get away from the fact that that this generation of baby boomers has been more likely to use substances such as uh, nicotine obviously smoking and also things like cannabis, and and that might influence the alcohol use. So it's a very different ball game. It's a very different population, and with very different risks. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that, doctor, because I'm like you. I'm also a baby boomer. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. I, I just remember many times, kind of staggering in the office with a shocking headache, and yeah. and you know, we just laugh about it. So, mm. Oh, can see you're a bit fragile this morning. Yeah. Ha -ha, you know, and, it, and as you say, it, it was cool to be a a ladette. I think we used to call it yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. It's crazy. It's it's it's. Peer pressure is just huge. Mm. And yeah, I, I thought back to my parents recently and uh, 
so obviously, you know, that you can think of that generation, like the post-war generation really grew up then. And um, they would never have wine in the house. No. If it was a birthday or, you know, a special occasion, they might go out mm, and buy mm. a bottle of champagne or something. But it was a, a really big deal. Yeah. But for me, you know, I, every Saturday be in the supermarket, at least, you know, seven bottles of wine, mm, bottle mm. of Jack Daniels, and it yeah. was completely normal. That's right. You know, we, we never thought we had a problem. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, crazy. So, you know, I was trying to think about the um, – you know, it's it's a combination of affordability, isn't it, as well? Because um, for my parents, a bottle of wine was a special treat. For me, it was just a necessity you picked up in the supermarket. And then you've got the marketing, which you mentioned by the liquor industry, who have particularly targeted us women, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, many of us, I think I was in this category. I drank for a couple of decades quite happily, mm. never thinking of it. And and I wanted it and I liked it, but I don't think I needed it at that point. It was only when I got into my 40s and 50s that I needed it. Yeah. So it, it gets the hook on you very slowly, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So what about the the kind of problems that you see in the communities, Doctor, with older people and drinking? Talk to us about that. You are listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So it's, it's obviously being a mental health practitioner, sort of a consultant psychiatrist who sees people with, with mental health problems. There, there are a range of problems. So although I specifically deal with mental health problems and mental disorders in older people, it also extends to their physical problems as well. So I commonly see people, and I don't want to give too much, we can talk about it in my book later, but but the reason why I wrote the book is, is to highlight the plight of older people with drinking problems, particularly women. And so it's quite common, for example, for older people with depression <clears throat> or loneliness or who suffered bereavement or are under a great deal of stress uh, to start drinking later on in life. So we, we do know, for example, that if you choose a group of people who are over the age of 65, you can be sure that about a third of them will have developed their alcohol problems in later life. And most of those people will be will be women. And so the sort of typical example is, uh, for, uh, is say, a, an older woman who has been bereaved or who can't get out or who's in pain or who's got depression, who then starts drinking to, to cope with life, really. And that is soon a slippery slope to, in some people, addiction, but in a lot of people, to harm. And that harm can constitute, can, can be constituted by characterized by a number of different kind of problems. So, for example, depression, uh, worsening anxiety. We can talk about dementia later, but de- dementia even. But apart from that, there's a whole host of physical problems, such as falls. So alcohol will influence your balance. And even in people who haven't got uh, health problems, uh, it uh, older people, their balance is impaired anyway. So it's things like that. It's things like depression, but it's also things like dementia. It's things like risk of high blood pressure, uh, sort of acidity. I mean, it, it, alcohol is associated with, I think, over 60 medical conditions and 200 different subcategories of medical disorder. So yeah. we're, we're looking at we're looking at a recipe for disaster. 
Absolutely. And I, I think that loneliness plays a big role in this. Mm. And that's why uh, I must say I'm loving, not wanting to blow my own trumpet, but I'm loving our, our community because yeah. so many ladies, you know, about my age, younger than me, actually, most of them, they join our community and, you know, just on WhatsApp, you can tell, you know, they, they're enjoying that connection. They're yeah. all, you know, we just had a new member now and everybody's saying, oh, welcome, you know, how are you? And it, it's beautiful to mm. see that. And I think a lot of older people are lonely and they end up almost forming a relationship with the alcohol. That's because, right. You know, it's a comfort, isn't it? It's yeah. almost like a friend mm, and mm. it's a, a very dangerous friend. Yeah. So recently we were both on some kind of discussion, weren't we, run by, by Phil Kane. Yeah. And there, there was a gentleman on there, a scientist, wasn't he, talking about the CDT test. Yeah. And I know that when I used to go to the doctor, I would uh, lie about my drinking, not that he ever raised it, but <laughs> if he did, I would have done. Yeah. And uh, I think many people do this. And I just wondered if you see any role for the CDT test. It's a really difficult one. So I have to I have to come out and say that I'm not I'm not an expert on the CDT test, but uh, having having a sort of research background is something that we we learned about, and it is used a lot more commonly in younger generations. I, I have to say one thing. What one thing about that I the one view I suppose I have of the CDT test is that the CDT test should not be an alternative to establishing a therapeutic relationship. Uh, so I think it's much more important that, that obviously you do the screening if people don't admit that they've got an alcohol problem. And there are telltale signs. So, for example, in older people, self-neglect, uh, uh, falls, or they're not eating properly, or they're feeling sick. Those sort of very subtle telltale signs which lead you to believe that they have a problem with alcohol. That shouldn't come in the way of having adopting a non-judgmental and non-confrontational approach to establishing a therapeutic relationship and trying to make people feel less stigmatized and more open about their alcohol consumption. Now, it, it probably would, because I've heard a, an interview with uh, another a professional whom you've had on this on a similar podcast, and I would agree with that person and, and say that there are certain groups of professionals for whom the CDT test is absolutely essential. So those are people where they're in jobs where split-second timing is incredibly important. So airline pilots, train drivers, anyone who's operating any sort of machinery that requires split-second split timing in making decisions. So I think that's important. But I think the, the, certainly the research has shown that in people who are heavy, heavy consumers of alcohol – and they don't readily admit their alcohol consumption. The CDT test can actually be, from an economical po economic point of view and from a health saving point of view, it can actually have a, a high what's called high cost benefit uh, ratio. So it can be cost effective if you intervene very early and uh, show someone their CDT test, obviously with permission and with the right approach, then it can probably help in. In, in future sort of harm reduction, if you like. So I think we have to be careful about making it a blanket rule uh, and distinguishing between that and uh, adopting a sort of much more specific approach to, to using it in certain circumstances. So I suppose that's my answer to that. 
Yeah, yeah. I must say, um, I mean, I said on, on that pod- podcast, didn't I? But mm. if I'd had that test in my early 40s, for example, yes. and if my doctor had said to you, oh, I've just done a, you know, a panel of blood tests on you, and I've got one here that says that, you know, maybe your your alcohol consumption is a little high. I swear I would have, you know, taken that seriously and, and, and you know, toned it down a bit. Whereas, I used to ask for liver function tests yeah. and they were always fine. So I thought, oh, well, I'm all right. And, and with me, yeah. I carried on boozing and then I got breast cancer at 55. And, you know, I'm pretty no. convinced yeah. that there, there is a link. There. Well, that's the thing I was going to say. Is, so that, that's the thing. That it, it is very, very specific for heavy drinking. So I think the the figures are that 50 to 60 grams of pure ethanol, which is about about between seven and eight units a day, on average. So you're looking at approaching a bottle of wine a day. The CDT test, then it's absolutely specific to detecting that. Whereas if you do something like what's called the gamma GT test, that that can be hugely unreliable, even in people who drink heavily. So I think think for people who drink heavily and they're in denial, um, it's an absolute uh, must to, to use that test to save them further heartache. And as you said, in, if you'd known that, it would have saved you uh, a lot of heartache and, and, and maybe prevented some of the health problems that you'd, that you'd had. Yeah, and maybe make the change before I got quite so hooked because uh, I did spend about 10 years trying to moderate because I couldn't imagine life without no, alcohol. Yeah. And eventually I had to accept defeat and I had to stop altogether. Yes. Whereas if I had caught it earlier, I might have been able to to drink like a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, yeah, so so as we're talking about limits and stuff, you know, I, I certainly was putting away a bottle of wine a night, which seems to be the norm in people that work with our community when they come to us. That seems to be the standard dose. Yeah. And um, so I know I often quote the British guidelines because they don't really seem to have any in South Africa. Okay. The low-risk guidelines are a bottle and a half of wine a week, you know, not a night, a week. Yes. So um, are they even less for older people, do you think? Well, this is the this is the thing. Well, the, the, the interesting background to this, the interesting background to this is that in 2011, we are, I, with a number of other authors, published this report called Our Invisible Addicts from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And I slipped in there. Uh, about four lines in a 60-page report which said that perhaps we should consider low, lower limits w- for what were then called uh, safe or recommended guidelines of 14 units per week for women and 21 units for men. And that caused a huge furore in, in the press. But one of the things that it did do it, it inspired, I suppose, the it was a it was an input, it was the impetus to the development of a working group that looked at guidelines. And that uh, five years after that was the the I suppose the the influence for the development of current drinking guidelines. So that's fourteen units per week for both. Now we would still maintain because we updated this these guidelines in two thousand and eighteen. We would still maintain that there should be lower risk. Uh, uh, lower guidelines, if you like, lower than 14 units, perhaps even something like 10 or 11 units per week for older people. And that's for a number of reasons. So just to give you some examples, apart from the fact that older people will be more susceptible to the effects of the same intake of alcohol as a younger person, so falls, uh, 
the, the sort of coexistence of uh, medical problems, but also the fact that for uh, for the same amount of alcohol that you drink compared with the younger people, compared with younger people, um, the first thing is it won't be metabolized or detoxified as quickly. It won't be removed from the bloodstream as quickly. And uh, even at lower doses, it may lead to dependence and health-rated harms for the reasons that I've just mentioned. So, so for all those reasons, I, I still firmly believe that we should be looking at lower, lower low-risk guidelines for uh, older people, uh, particularly for this generation who, who, are, who are at more risk or more risk of harm. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And uh, you haven't even mentioned the the meds that they're on. What did you say? Five different types of meds. Because I believe that, isn't it, the liver that metabolizes those meds. And so there's so much strain going, going on your liver as you get older. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. yeah, definitely need a lower guideline there. Um, do you have any ideas about how we can motivate older people to make a change? Because uh, it, there, there's this, um, I've, I've come across this kind of mindset of, well, you know, I've probably done all the damage now. Yeah. And I haven't got that long left, so I'm yeah. just going to enjoy myself. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, this is the, this is the smoking. I, and I keep, I keep talking about, I've been talking about it in the media for 10, 15 years or more. This is the the sort of smoking argument of the 1960s and 70s. So that's the kind of thing where not just the person who's drinking, but the relatives, there's often collusion. Well, it's the only thing they've got in their life and you can't take them away, take it away from them. Uh, They're only sleeping poorly because they've always been like that. It's not the alcohol. And then you've got health practitioners overlooking the alcohol problem or, or focusing on other things. And I think the, the difference is now that older people are living longer. I think that's a that yeah. big thing. So there's a quote from uh, someone quite famous who's now passed away called Professor Griffith Edwards, who was the, was the person who founded, he actually invented the term or developed the term alcohol dependence syndrome in the 1960s and 70s. And he said in, in, in 1967, God, are you talking about 50 years ago, that the reason why we don't see older people in our services um, is not because they have got treated properly, uh, or they've gone back to normal drinking, it's because they don't live as long. Now, look, 50 years later, you've got l- longevity, meaning that older people live now, the average life expectancy is something like 86 for women in the UK anyway, and 80, 81 or 82 for men. Um, so we know a lot more about the health harms of alcohol now than we did 50 years ago. So what we know now is we know we know beyond reasonable doubt now in 2020 that older people are at higher at far higher risk of alcohol problems than their, their sort of predecessor generations. And we also know that these low risk guidelines were not plucked out of thin air, as has been quoted or commented about the 1985 guidelines, which which were revised. And that uh, exceeding these guidelines does put people, older people at risk of developing physical and mental health problems. So if you regularly exceed these guidelines, uh, it's never too late to change. There are practical ways that you can reduce your alcohol intake. 
so, for example, I'm sure it's the same in South Africa. There are a number of voluntary agencies that have websites to help you reduce your, your alcohol intake. But I think it's important also to realize that not just your GP, but it's also your, your social connections, such as your family and friends. And I would say your connectivity to the outside world, whether it's social media or the telephone, I think these things, in addition to you having the resilience and self-motivation to change your alcohol uh, intake, they can actually be a lifesaver. I think all these things, and and similarly with diet and exercise, it's not surprising that although per capita, the sort of, in England, certainly that the leafy middle-class suburban populations who drink a bottle of wine or a bottle of wine a day uh, have actually lower mortality rates than uh, people who might drink slightly less living in inner city areas because those people, uh, the former, former group, actually survive alcohol uh, not because because it, they, they survive alcohol in spite of the alcohol, not because of it, because they have adaptive lifestyles that help them to cope better. So I think there's a lesson to be learned there with maintaining a healthy body and a healthy mind. Yeah, and, and certainly connection. I mean, there's, mm. there's a lovely expression that we use quite a lot, which is uh, connection is the opposite of addiction. Uh, yeah. I, I really believe yeah. in that. And, yeah, to go back uh, to lifespan, I mean – if, if us ladies, you know, are blessed mm. enough these days to have the possibility of living till 86, we want those years from 76 to 86 to be okay. We don't want That's to right. be suffering from a million different, you know, b- diseases, do yeah. we? So it's it's about dying well, isn't it? Mm, mm. You know, it's a choice here. The interesting thing and, about uh, that, um, uh, Janet, is the um, is the fact that that so much, whether it's COVID or it's alcohol. The, the government and the politicians and the public seem so hooked on mortality as the end point of what we should be measuring. I, I, but being a, being a community uh, mental health practitioner, I'm sure it's the same with, with GPs, quality of life is so much more important. So, for example, alcohol for people between the ages of 55 and 74 now in, well, it was last year that, that they were updated, these figures, is the sixth biggest risk factor for poor quality of life. Uh, and that's above diet and cholesterol and a number of other things, drug use, all, all those other things. And I think there should be much more of a focus on quality of life rather than simply the end point, such as cirrhosis or, 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 or mortality. I think it's far more important to look at every pe- people's everyday, everyday living and their independence. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if uh, studies have been done on, you know, vast cohort of people to look at their last 10 years. It'd be quite interesting to know how many people, you know, suffer. Because my kind of anecdotally, you think, well, I personally know quite a lot of people that have a very difficult mm. last 10 years. Yes. But it'd uh, be interesting, wouldn't it, to, mm. to mm. know that? Because I absolutely agree it's the quality of life is not the length of life. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to live till 100 if my last 20 years is torture. Yeah, you know, sure. it, yeah. It makes sense. But, yeah, talking of, of age, mm. you know, I, I, I think I'm a good example <laughs> for you. Yeah. Because I stopped drinking at the age of 63. Uh-huh. And I'm in my sixth year of sobriety, so there you are, oh, right, my yeah. age away now. And but um, what made me uh, change was actually fear, because yeah. you know I had well I had the breast cancer thing, but I was pretty much in denial because that was mm. back in 2006. Yeah, it's only recently that there's been a lot of press about the link between That's breast right. cancer. 
And and what changed me was uh, blackouts. I was having more and more blackouts. Yes. And one day I had a walking, talking blackout and I lost Gosh. an entire afternoon. Yeah. And my friends that I was with, they told me that I was walking and talking and I seemed absolutely fine. Mm. And for some reason that frightened me to death because I think I knew that I was harming my body. Mm. But it was only then that I realized I was doing something nasty to my brain yeah. as well. So can you talk to us about yeah. a blackout? What is it? Oh, sure. So I suppose that the first thing to say about a blackout is that we know, we know definitively that blackout, for someone who's drinking heavily, it's probably one of the few predictors of alcohol dependence. So so apart from the fact that you get you get withdrawal and you need to drink more to get the same effect, et cetera, et cetera, and it takes over your life, we, we know that that blackouts are an early sign of dependence but so at a, at a sort of brain level what blackouts mean is that there's a very specific problem with the laying down of new memory during that period of heavy alcohol use now it's not the same thing as saying oh i i can't remember what i did last night because you will you will have a vague recollection of what you did it's actually quite a dangerous scenario where uh, the the al- the alcohol that you drink at that time spikes a an increase in the level of a particular neurochemical a chemical transmitter in the brain called glutamate, and what that glutamate does it stops the laying down of that memory or those memories at the time, and consolidating them. So in other words, storing them in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. So in you or I, what happens is that when we are when we take in a memory, if you like, or an episode or something that happened, it goes into our, our brain at the front of our brain called the frontal lobes. And then it gets it gets sort of processed by uh, the middle part of our brain. And then it gets put into long-term memory in the hippocampus. What uh, alcohol does during a blackout is it stops the laying down of that transmission of memory uh, because of that spike in neurochemicals. And it's it's something technically you could call long-term potentiation. It's something that that allows us to form new memories. And, and so that's the exact, I suppose, biochemical or molecular or kind of in detail explanation of why during a blackout you are unable to lay down the memories that most people would be able to do had they not been drinking at that level. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah, I because I, I, I researched that a little bit yeah, and yeah. I found that far more chilling than uh, Absolutely. the fact that I might yeah. have forgotten stuff. You yeah. know, my brain was so drenched in alcohol, it didn't even make memories in the mm, first place. Mm. And uh, I also discovered relatively recently that jails, you know, prisons are full of people that have done terrible crimes in blackouts and they had oh, no memory. Of yeah. Can, can you imagine waking up, you're in jail and you're thinking, why am I here? What happened? Absolutely. And I, th- I think the difficulty there is that people think they're malingering or they're just making it up when, in fact, alcohol related. I mean, obviously, sometimes it might be used as a, as a way of, of mitigating your sentence, but it is a genuine, it is a genuine phenomenon. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, people have even committed murder in a blackout yeah. and, and had no memory of it. It's, mm. it's very frightening. Um, yeah, I just wanted to 
tell you my my breast cancer anecdote. Oh yeah, you know I had yeah. I had mastectomy and whatever chemotherapy. Mm. It was all a bit of a nightmare, oh, but yeah. I was lucky enough to come through at the other side. Mm. And when I'd finished my treatment, I had this kind of debrief with the um, with the oncologist, and I said to him, uh, "Okay, well, you know, this has been a nightmare, and I'm so grateful that I've got through it." tell me what lifestyle changes I need to make. You know, should I steer clear of alcohol? Should I just eat all organic? And he said to me, no, no. He said, you know, you've you've come through this. He said, now you need to go away and enjoy your life. Mm. <laughs> so it was like, eat, drink, be merry. So yeah. of course I did. And I think that's a bit irresponsible. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, coming coming back to the research, so coming back to, I suppose the advantage that I have is both being a clinician and and having having looked at the sort of public health aspects of this, if we look at the the really large scale epidemiological studies, so what epidemiology is, it looks at the distribution of disease and what the risk for disease is over over the course of time. If you look at large scale studies, we we now know that there are particular health conditions where even so for example give let, let, let's talk about breast cancer breast cancer is one of the few uh, conditions where we know again definitively now that if you drink more than on average one unit i'm talking about one unit of alcohol per day then you increase your chances of, of breast cancer so to talk about the fact that you can be permissive and, and liberal and, and very uh, I suppose uh, hedonistic with your drinking is 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 some in 2020 is is somewhat irresponsible, and unfortunately there are a number of uh, not just GPs but also uh, physicians or other medical practitioners who really don't know this data, uh, and so you're not just talking about breast cancer. Drinking on average one unit of alcohol per day is associated with uh, an increased risk of all-cause mortality, and that includes things like stroke. So it's not a joke anymore. Uh, and these low-risk drinking guidelines are there for a reason, and that's to protect people's health. Yeah, yeah. So uh, can we talk about COVID for a moment because yes. it's on everybody's mind? Yeah. So there's um, the immune system, isn't there? Alcohol that's weakens fine. the immune system. Mm. So talk to us about why we should avoid alcohol during this very difficult period for the whole world. Well, this is the this is the other thing, of course, that, that there is an association between alcohol and and immunity. So there are certain there are certain well, there, there are two aspects of this. One of the one of the, one of the aspects is that alcohol weakens the immune response. Okay, the other thing that a lot of people it sounds like Michael Caine, isn't it? But a lot of the people that people don't know a lot about <laughs> is the fact that if you drink heavily, what you do is you in fact. You, you sort of instigate or you, uh, <clears throat> I suppose, influence the development of a, a, an immune response that's not dissimilar to COVID, which is really interesting. So, so yeah, well, so, that, so there's, a particularly inflammatory, there's a particular inflammatory marker called tumor necrosis factor alpha, okay? Now, that, that inflammatory marker is raised in, in most people's normal immune response. And we know even before COVID that if you drink heavily, that is, that is raised and can cause an abnormal immune response uh, in, similar to COVID where it attacks your, attacks your brain in particular, uh, but it attacks the rest of your immune system. So if we know that alcohol does that even before COVID, if you add COVID to that, then that really is a recipe for disaster. Uh, drinking heavily yeah. and and having COVID in terms of the immune response. So we're not we're not talking about necessarily a, a decreased immune response. We're talking 
We're talking about an overactivity of the immune system that can damage literally every part of your body, right from your brain uh, to your liver, to your bloodstream. So I think people really ought to, to know about, we talked about uh, scaring people. We, obviously, our job is not to scare people. But if you know that if you drink heavily and your immune system is in overdrive, and that's what COVID will do, then you really should be thinking carefully about how you can access help for your for your drinking. So that that's the, yeah. that's the that's the score. That's the story about alcohol and COVID. Yeah, and it causes uh, there's this amazing expression. What is it? A cytokine, cytokine storm. Cytokine storm. That's right. <laughs> the human yeah. is what is one of the sort of cytokines cytokines involved in that storm. And if you get a storm like that, your possibility of surviving in ICU is is much lower. I think absolutely, isn't it? it just destroys your whole your yeah. particularly starting with your bloodstream. It just it clogs up your arteries and just destroys your your body, which is not a nice thing to happen to anyone. No, and I think the fact that uh, your body treats alcohol as if it's an infection—that's that's quite sad. yeah, absolutely yes, yes. Because all the uh, immune system gets flared that's up, right. and uh, that's you right. know we can't put too much strain on our poor immune systems, absolutely. can we? Yes. Okay. Well, this is turning into a very cheerful conversation, <laughs> isn't it? So let let's carry on the theme yeah. of death and despair and talk <laughs> about uh, alcohol and dementia link. Yes. Yes. So I suppose. So there, there are two aspects of this uh, in terms of alcohol and damage to the brain. So there was the sort of damages to the brain you can't reverse. Okay, So, for example, if alcohol leads to, to high blood pressure, you have a stroke or you fall over while you're drunk and you knock your head and maybe have you bleed in your head or you damage your head. Now, uh, damage your brain, that, that those can't be reversed. But there, there are two groups of, of disorders, if you like, that, that can – well, one group of disorders can be reversed – uh, and one group of disorders that can be prevented. So the first group of disorders that can be prevented is is something called Korsakoff's, and everybody will have heard of Korsakoff's. It's a it's a brain disorder where you you damage your memory irreparably, and it's caused by a deficiency of thiamine. And that's just not just because you've got no thiamine in your diet because you're drinking all the time. It's the fact that alcohol will stop you absorbing any thiamine that you get. So that any opportunity for heavy drinkers, whether they turn up in A&E or whether they go to their GP, you, you need to replenish people's thiamine. So you can prevent Korsakoff's by maintaining normal levels of thiamine. So that's in terms of prevention. In terms of treatment and reversibility, if you drink heavily and you develop what's called alcohol-related dementia, it doesn't it doesn't, it's not the same sort of dementia as you would get, say, with Alzheimer's disease. And the reason for that is it damages a particular area of the brain called your frontal lobes. Now, your frontal lobes are in a particular area of the brain that are concerned with things like your personality, your judgment, your planning, your your, your capacity to make uh, informed decisions about risk, for example. That includes drinking as well. If you damage those areas of your brain, um, those areas of the brain, so, so you develop, say, some, some memory problems or some, some problems with your frontal lobe function uh, as such. And if you, if you can become abstinent at that stage, the, the, both the research, so if you look at brain scans, they've actually shown, which is really interesting, some reversibility in the brain structure. And I can tell you at least two story, clinical anecdotes of both women, actually, both ladies in their 70s. This is, this is 
few year, a few years ago, so on separate occasions, I tested their cognitive functions, so their memory and their frontal lobe functions, so what we call cognitive testing for dementia. And this is a score out of 100, okay? Now, most people will be scoring in the late 80s and above. And both these women, highly educated women, middle-class women who are drinking an excessive bottle of wine a day, they were scoring in the late 70s. And so what I did was, and it wasn't overnight, I managed to get them to stop drinking. So through through what you might, you might call it brief intervention or motivational interviewing, that, that sort of approach, and improving their social connectivity and so on. And they stopped drinking completely. And it's not a, it, it was a miracle to me to realize that what I read about in the books actually happened. Their scores on those same tests went into the mid-80s. And I could not, I really... I mean, I'd, I'd like to have thought that that could possibly be a miracle, and and but but it actually was there staring me in the face in real life that the, the both these women who had become abstinent and had they continued, they may have suffered irreparable uh, brain damage and dementia. They could actually reverse their intellectual abilities simply by becoming abstinent. So it's one of it's probably the if 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 not the only one of the few so-called dementias that can be partially reversed through becoming abstinent. And that is a less a salutary, salutary lesson that we should all learn when we consider the possibility of recovery. So not just recovery in our lives in terms of addiction, but recovery in brain function. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Wow, that's, yeah. that's such a moti- motivator, yeah. isn't it? Those ladies, those ladies must have been thrilled. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they must have hopefully uh, ne- never drunk again after that. Well, yes, I followed them up and they, and they hadn't, yes, yes. Fabulous, mm. yeah. So in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's about a million people suffering from dementia, yes. give or take. Yeah. What proportion of those do you think might be alcohol-related? So what we know, we, we know that from studies in Australia that people with early-onset dementia, so those who develop dementia before the age of 50 or 55, for example, uh, although there's a heavy genetic component, the, the interesting thing is that things like Alzheimer's disease, alcohol... Uh, uh, misuse or heavy drinking is the second commonest cause of dementia. You can believe that. Like something like thirty to forty percent of people with early onset dementia now uh, is related to alcohol uh, misuse, and that's 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 that was quite surprising to me. So for people over the age of say over over sixty sixty five, it's probably varies between one and five percent. Now. When we talk about percentages, that may, need, may not seem like a huge amount. So one in uh, one in a uh, hundred or one in twenty. But look at it over the wider population of millions. You're talking about thousands of people with uh, with alcohol-related dementia. If you can consider that, that's wholly preventable. One of the few dementias that wholly, that's wholly preventable. We need to be intervening from a public health point of view and a clinical point of view at much earlier stages and of course you've got me on my hobby horse there in terms of uh, access to services and the fact that older people are often bounced between services because they say we can't treat your dementia unless you stop drinking we can't treat your 
you're you're drinking unless the dementia. So so th this is the thing that that we need people to be more aware, but we also need to be we need services to be more aware of intervening early and getting people to cut down or stop drinking uh, at a much earlier stage. Yeah, well, that's that's quite something when you think that thousands of people with early onset dementia they could maybe reverse it. Yeah, yeah. you know that surely that should be a public yeah. health message. Mm -hmm. you know, I've mm -hmm. never seen any any indication of that anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, that's that's a kind of glimmer of hope in our gloomy. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late, no, guys. That's right. Stop drinking. Yeah. Um, now let's let's talk about your book. Yeah. Catch me if you can. It's called Catch, Catch, me, when I, think, Catch me when I fall. Catch me yeah. when I fall. Sorry, there's a movie called. That's Catch right. That's right. So um, I think I'm, I'm someone that always loves case studies. You know, yeah. I loved your case studies of the two ladies. So for me, it's it's such a brilliant way to to bring what can be quite a heavy um, intellectual subject to life, you know, mm. and the fact that you, you base this story on a lady in your community, which, you know, I can tell you're passionate about mm. helping your, your Bermondsey population there. So talk to us a bit about the book, you know, when did you get the idea to write it? What was your process? Um, was it easy to write difficult and how can people get a copy? Okay. So yeah, three, so three questions. So, in one. Well, I suppose the, the first, before I say anything else, the, pro, the all the profits of, of this book are, are going towards a, the lo a local Bermondsey charity. So, um, so I suppose what inspired me to write this book was the fact that there was so much passion in there to, I suppose it's on the background of you know when I was younger reading things like Test of the D'Urbervilles, sort of vulnerable women who who are never given a voice, who are never given the opportunity to improve their lives. So I sort of dramatised that into a, a sort of semi-love story, um, something that was culturally bound into Bermondsey practice, telling you a little bit about the history of how that community developed. So it was sort of like a mishmash of historical narrative and political rhetoric in making sure that older people with alcohol problems were not just bounced between services and and passed by the wayside. And uh, I, what what inspired me to first develop an interest in alcohol problems, which perhaps I haven't said, was the fact that uh, about 15 years ago, I saw the, the, the umpteenth older older uh, man with uh, uh, dementia coming into alcohol-related dementia coming to my services. And, and so over the, over the course of those further 15 years, I thought, well, there's got to be some way of communicating this to the public other than research or policy development. And, and why not do it in a in a kind of dramatic way? And my, my I, I know it may never come to fruition, but my hope is, 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 is getting this into some sort of screenplay and maybe uh, labelled with love from Squeeze, which would be an absolutely apt uh, kind of uh, story, story theme music for this to... Um, to convert this into that, because I, I honestly do believe um, that that the use of uh, the use of drama uh, and the use of historical narrative can can kind of embolden it, kind of dramatise and, and and transform your your passion for what you do into something. And there's a little bit about my own my own personal life in that, which is sort of semi semi and well sort of anonymised. But um, uh, and and I hope I hope it'll be a kind of both. Um, uh, increasing people's knowledge of sort of how culture influences drinking, uh, but also a, a kind of indication about how there are two possible endings to uh, a, a story. I won't give too much away. And in fact, how, how people can be helped. 
so that's that's really w- w- what drove me to to um, to write it. And in fact, what I'm doing is I'm embarking on a on a. Can you believe that I'm embarking on a second novella now about an older man with drug problems? And uh, I actually spent three months, can you believe, re- reading about the history of Bermondsey. Uh, before I wrote the book, and I'm doing a similar thing. I'm, I'm spending a few months reading about the drug scene in the 1960s to write my next book. So I think I think that that you can call yourself an expert from research, from whatever clinical, but you need to be embedded into the culture of a society before you can have any understanding about uh, uh, alcohol or drugs or, or or substances that we all use as part of our everyday lifestyle. So. And you can get it. You can get it from um, at the moment. You can get it from Amazon, um, uh, from Audible. But it will be coming out I- uh, next year from uh, Austin Macaulay as an official publisher. Great. Okay. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes. But I love your idea of, about a movie. I've, I've even cast it for you. I can't decide whether Peggy will be Maggie Smith yeah. or Glenda Jackson. What do you think? Yes. Yes. It's a spot for choice. I'm, I'm sure Glenda Jackson would do it because she's very political, isn't she? You you get on to Glenda, you'll see. <laughs> she's got good contacts in the movie world. Okay, well, as we kind of approach the end of our yeah. conversation, I mean, you've worked tirelessly for, for decades to raise these issues. Um, you know, I salute you for that. Thank you. If, if I could ask you to leave a, a message, uh, what message would you pass on to people who are older than 55, still drinking a lot? What, what would you say to them? It's difficult. There's so many different messages that I could get across. I, I suppose, firstly, just don't be too cynical about these these low risk guidelines. Don't forget that alcohol is a drug. If alcohol came on the market now, it wouldn't. It would probably be in the same category as benzodiazepines. So take take these limits seriously. It is something that that can do long term harm to your health. And so look look at your everyday drinking more carefully and consider it more carefully. The second thing is that if you do find yourself having a problem with alcohol, just because you're older, it doesn't mean that you you have a, a poorer outlook. In fact, the research has shown that older people who seek help for their alcohol problems have the same, if not better outcomes uh, than younger people. And the third thing is that don't give up trying to, to seek help. What, when I've been doing this uh, I suppose taking an interest in this. I've I've got messages from people all over the country about saying my local alcohol service won't do this and and I, I'm stuck. There is always hope, there is always a way. Don't give up and just keep plugging away because you will find hope and, and, and salvation uh, somehow. Thank you so much, Dr. Tony. That was extremely interesting and will increase the awareness of so many people listening in. As usual, I've pulled out some points that really resonated with me. The first point that struck me is that the baby boomer generation is far more susceptible to alcohol abuse than previous generations. And that's because we grew up with very different cultural attitudes to those of our parents. For example, it was quite acceptable to be drunk occasionally, even for us ladies. I remember staggering into the office occasionally and complaining bitterly about my hangover and I would get lots of sympathy because people, some of them also had hangovers or they'd certainly been where I was. And in fact, in the kind of big companies where I worked, there was always this culture of, and work hard, play hard, 
And we did work hard, you know, we did great work and we worked long hours. But occasionally, at least once a week, we were expected to go out with our colleagues and have a, a real heavy drinking session. And the second point is that after decades of drinking, us baby boomers haven't even tried to cut down. In fact, we've come to rely on alcohol even more as a kind of coping mechanism. And many older people are in complete denial about their drinking. It is such a habit, it's really part of their lifestyle. But as we get older, our health is deteriorating. And the average person in their 70s is actually on five medications. So you can imagine the reaction with alcohol that's going to take place. A third point is that many older people see alcohol as their friend. They say, oh, well, it's the only thing I've got. And they're using it to cope with depression, anxiety and loneliness. Another point that Dr. Tony made is that because alcohol is linked to at least 60 diseases and we get more fragile as we get older, he believes that the low risk limit should be reduced to 10 or 11 units a week for older people rather than 14, which is as they are for the general population. Another point that Dr. Tony made is that because alcohol is linked to 60 plus diseases, and as older people, we get more fragile from a health perspective. He feels that the low risk limit should actually be reduced for older people. It should be something like 10 units a week rather than 14, which it is for the general population. Because for older people, there are extra risks. There's falls. There's the fact that it'll mix with medication. And also, alcohol doesn't get metabolized so quickly in an older person, and that, in fact, increases the risk of dependency. And then, of course, there's dementia. There's alcohol linked to dementia. Another point we touched on is that maybe the emphasis should be on living well more than living long. People are living longer these days. The life expectancy for a woman is 86, and for a man, it's 85. People obsess about how long they're going to live, but in fact, of course, it's the quality of life that matters. Those last 10 years, 76 to 86 can be good years, but only if we look after ourselves. And of course, we touched on alcohol and COVID. Alcohol weakens the immune system and stimulates inflammation. COVID also stimulates inflammation, so we end up with a cytokine storm. So a cytokine storm is another word for overactivity of the immune system and it can damage the brain and all parts of our body. And the possibility of surviving ICU is lowered significantly if our immune system is already inflamed. We talked about how people can make a change. Dr. Tony said it's never too late. And this is where we're on absolutely the same page. We both believe that having a network can be a lifesaver, a network we can be open and honest with, a network who will not judge us, but will encourage and support us, because we always need to remember that connection is the opposite of addiction. We talked about Dr. Tony's book. It's called Catch Me When I Fall, 
And I've read that book. It's really very moving. It's about uh, an older lady called Peggy who is dealing with her alcoholism or trying to deal with it. And it's uh, it's sad. But as he said it, the use of drama really increases people's knowledge of the subject and it brings it to life far more than reading academic papers would. So good for you, Dr. Tony, writing that book. And I believe there's another one in development, this time about drug, drug abuse. So we ended with three bits of advice for the over 55s from Dr. Tony. Number one, don't be cynical about these low-risk limits. Alcohol is a drug and it'll do long-term harm. If you do have a problem, get help, find a community. And finally, don't give up. There is always help. So if you are over 55 and worried about your drinking, please check out tribesober.com. We might just be the community you're looking for. That's it from me. See you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.